From economics to geopolitics, this is The Shady Economist. I'm your host, Alex Colalillo, an economist and risk advisor. Please join me and special guests on all things economics, international relations and more. I'm here to keep you informed, simplify complex economic theory and equip you with the tools to empower yourself and engage in intellectual debate. So, let's get started. Today's topic is about the economics of disposable dating culture. I've been paying particular attention to this after entering the so-called dating market at the late age of 25. When I was chatting to some mates about this upcoming episode, they all asked what I meant by disposable dating. And I thought to myself, is this a term I've made up? Maybe, but I've heard of being thrown around before. Nonetheless, you may have heard the term disposable friend before. And the word disposable itself doesn't sound particularly well gestured, but it really isn't that bad. You may have come across people who have entered your life due to a particular disposition. For example, someone you go to lectures with at uni or perhaps someone you met at a party and you hang out with them for a bit or maybe even for a few years. But then uni ends and you don't hang out with them anymore. Not because you don't like them. It's just that logistical circumstances have changed and they've entered and left your life, either making a positive or negative impact. What we're talking about here, though, isn't about disposable friends as such, but about disposable dating, swiping left and right on dating apps, lining up four coffee dates back-to-back on a weekend with four different people, hoping that perhaps one of them will take your fancy. But then you fast-forward to the end of the weekend, concluding that perhaps none of them really were quite right. There must be someone better or more well-suited for you out there. So what do you do? You cut them off, ghost them or whatever millennials or Gen Zs do today, hop back on Tinder and continue to swipe, only to rinse and repeat the next weekend. That's what I define as disposable dating. And I'm definitely not guilt-free of this, although I will say I'm not a ghoster personally. But what I have done, though, is willingly made poor choices of chasing red flags who I know aren't going to be right for me from the get-go. And why do I do it? Well, for many irrational reasons, but I won't go into those now. We're here to talk about economics. Actually, though, how is it all related to economics? Well, let's start with a brief history of dating as a concept, maybe, and how it's evolved into what it is today. Prior to the 20th century, the idea of dating meant something quite different, where formal methods of courtship rituals were commonplace. Potential mates would be paired together based on family background, race or wealth, and potential mates in question would spend their time getting to know one another before agreeing to establish a formal relationship, such as marriage. The sexual revolution in the mid-20th century helped dissolve many of these lingering traditions, and taboos around who could or who should date whom ended. People began assessing for themselves what the costs or benefits of certain partnerships may be a decision that used to be a family's rather than an individual's. In the present modern era, the metaphor marketplace is very commonly used in the realm of dating, and it seems probable that the way many people now shop online for goods in virtual marketplaces, where they can easily filter out features they do and don't want, has influenced the way people shop for partners, 
especially on dating apps, which often allow the same kind of filtering. There are many problems associated with the so-called market metaphor used for human-to-human matches. The fact that human-to-human matches are less predictable than consumer-to-good matches is just one problem with the market metaphor. Another is that dating is not a one-time transaction. With the rise of hookup culture and the normalisation of polyamory and open relationships, it's perfectly common for people to seek partnerships that won't necessarily preclude them from seeking other partnerships later on or in addition. Another reason why it's crazy to use the term marketplace as a metaphor for dating is that it assumes dating should be fair and that there is someone responsible when it isn't fair. The logic is upsetting but clear. You see, the foundational idea of capitalism is that the market is impartial and correct and that its mechanisms of supply and demand and value exchange guarantee that everything is fair. Well, it just isn't the case in the dating world. Anyway, we could dissect that metaphor for ages, but let's dive into good old demand and supply. I'm going to talk about supply and demand in the dating market at a high level initially here before breaking it down in finer detail later in this episode. What is being offered and what is being desired? How well do they match to meet an equilibrium point where the supply of various people with different attributes available equals demand? This is something that will never quite be completely paired. Let's focus on the supply side of all of this first. Before the internet, the market for dating was far smaller and people couldn't be picky about who their partners were. However, with the rise of online dating, we have what it feels like to be an unlimited number of people at our fingertips to meet and date online. And because there are so many people in the market who are accessible to date, the value we place on each date or connection is diminished. Let's quickly divert to the market for diamonds. Despite popular opinion, diamonds aren't particularly rare. So one has to ask the question as to why they are so expensive. Well, here's why. Throughout the 19th century, De Beers effectively maintained a monopoly on global diamond mines. The cartel would stockpile diamonds, limit supply and drive up demand and therefore the value of diamonds. You see, economics is simply the study of how to allocate scarce resources. And a scarce resource is essentially any resource that is not infinite in supply. For example, food, housing, and in this case, we're talking about relationships or people to have them with. We could typically say that finding your life partner on a night out is quite scarce, right? So prior to dating apps, if you did meet someone on a night out who you really liked, perhaps you would place significant value on that individual because the chances of you meeting that kind of person in the first place is scarce. But with the rise of online dating, there is an illusion that there are plenty more fish in the sea, an abundance of people at your fingertips. So the concept of scarcity goes out the window. And what happens as a result? Well, the value you place on each individual diminishes. So while it seems like dating is easier because you can profile 50 people in one night on your phone while eating ice cream in bed, rather than going out on the town in a hopeful search for your true love, people aren't necessarily more satisfied or feel that their dating game has been more successful. One could argue that the demand for people isn't necessarily there either. And this draws back to the idea that the grass is greener on the other side, or put more simply, that there may always be someone better out there for you. This ties into the concept of risk diversification, 
or the common phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Advice often given when investing in stocks, but it also applies to the dating game. This is the concept of not settling too quickly in case you are limiting your exposure to others on the market that could fulfill your needs and desires more. And if I'm going to be honest, I really can't see more than a maximum of two people simultaneously because of the time constraints. Also, I often ask the question as to how it's possible to form and grow meaningful relationships with people if you're just touching the surface across four different humans. I'll dive deeper into the supply and demand dynamics of dating a little later. So yes, the concept of online dating theoretically seems more accessible and efficient. A quick swipe right or left at a picture, a few back and forth texts to then determine whether you want to meet them face to face. Seems simple, right? Perhaps not really so. Let's start with the term willingness to pay. Traditionally, the economic term means the maximum price at or below which a consumer will buy one unit of a product. For example, you could hypothetically say that the maximum price you're willing to pay for an apple is $3. In this case, let's change that to how invested you are in finding a partner. Online dating can be a lengthy process, especially if you're talking to more than one person. If you're looking for a quick hookup, then the investment is minimal. Alternatively, if you're looking for the one or whatever, then you may want to set aside more time. On the flip side, willingness to accept is a different way to filter through an endless supply of people. Willingness to accept simply means the minimum amount of money that a person is willing to accept to abandon a good or to put up with something negative. An example here could be telling a friend that you would happily dye your hair green if she or he awards you $50. In this case, we're talking about the question, what do you want in a partner? What are you willing to accept places boundaries on the idea? For example, how tall does someone need to be? What interests do they need to have? Do you care about the level of education, the amount of money they earn, or their social views, etc.? So willingness to pay and accept different kinds of people will vary among us all, and it's definitely something we all subconsciously consider. There are also two ways of looking at opportunity cost here, and if you remember from previous episodes, this term just means the time or money you spent on or doing something that could have been time or money spent doing something else. Firstly, one could argue that online dating enables you to limit the opportunity cost of your time and money spent. So rather than subsequently going on a date with someone you met and hooked up with at a club, but barely talked to for two minutes, instead you can apply some vetting principles and get a feel for who they are over shared messages and dating app pictures before you meet them. That way, you know what you're getting into and don't have to spend money buying drinks for someone who may well be a dead end. On the opposing side of this argument, you could also argue that online dating increases the opportunity cost of your time and money spent. You see, well, at least from my experience, no matter how much you connect with someone online, you really don't know if you're attracted to them until you meet them in person. And I believe that within the first few minutes of engaging with that person, you've made your decision. How many of you have had situations where you'll meet up with someone over coffee, invest some money into the coffee and then think, oh God, they're definitely not for me and now I'm going to have to sit through the next two hours of this because I'm not ballsy enough to call it quits within minutes of meeting the person. It certainly happened to me. Now let's revisit our willingness to pay and accept certain types of people as this ultimately determines who you end up with. Your initial list of willingness to pay and willingness to accept was based on the pool you had in your head. 
but now you've been in the game and swim around a bit in the pool and you need to correct and match your expectations to reality. Experience alters perception. You need to ask yourself the question, given what's out there, do you think you are willing to pay more or less in regards to time and energy? And what about your willingness to accept? Did you find that maybe some boundaries were too tight? That maybe you realise that you don't care as much about how much money they make, if the trade-off is a good sense of humour or ambition and plans for the future? As a queer person, I feel like the willingness to pay and accept is slightly skewed because often the pool of people supply is fewer. Dating also intercepts an economic concept called game theory. Now, for the purpose of this analysis, let's assume a heteronormative framework. I'm going to introduce the term called Nash equilibrium. This is a concept in game theory where the optimal outcome of a game is where no player has an incentive to deviate from his chosen strategy after considering an opponent's choice. This economic theory ties back to dating as well. If I think back to an economist, Gary Becker, he wrote a book called The Theory of Marriage, and its main prediction holds that both men and women can objectively be ranked by some trait or index of attributes, which could include education, income and age, or attractiveness, put shortly. The best social outcome is when they are matched by rank, i.e. the most attractive man matches with the most attractive woman, the second most attractive with the second, and so on down the ranking. Assuming people are rational actors, in such a matching, no man or woman wants to deviate from his or her choice of mate because the more attractive potential partners are already taken and the less attractive ones are not in his or her interest. In other words, a sort of matching is not only socially optimal, but is also what we call Nash equilibrium, a state in which each participant in a strategic interaction is acting optimally given the choices of all the other participants. With the advance of social networks and increasing prevalence of online dating, the question of how men and women match up has gained importance in economics and society. With unprecedented access to data collected through surveys and online dating platforms, it's actually possible to see whether Nash's intuition and its formalisation through mainstream economic theory still hold up. Recent studies of data from online dating platforms have actually detailed that men and women target partners that are ranked much higher than themselves in the desirability hierarchy. In other words, it seems as though everybody is seeking the most attractive person in the bar. So obviously the whole Nash theory breaks down here, doesn't it? Well, yes it does, unless we challenge the assumption that both men and women can perfectly distinguish each other when searching for a match. I mentioned earlier that I would dive deeper into the economic demand and supply of the dating world. So let's get a bit nerdy and model attractiveness against available relationships. Here are the variables. Price is going to be how attractive you must be. Attractive not just in physical terms, but also in terms of humour, money, education, etc. So any positive trait that makes you more desirable as a partner. And quantity will be how many relationships are available at this level. Supply will be how many people are willing to date someone at this level of attractiveness. And demand will be how many people want someone this attractive to date. There are plenty of different ways to model this through a cross-section of variables, dissecting the effect of each determinant of attractiveness mentioned earlier, like physical appearance, education, race, etc. But in the nature of time, I'll look at a few of these only. Regardless, 
It's important to note here that potential partners in this market are differentiated goods. This means that partners are all potentially equally good, but qualities are valued differently by different people. So holding this true, what happens when there is a local population who is more attractive? For example, perhaps you simply exist among the beautiful, handsome and wealthy of society. We would likely find that it becomes harder to find a date for the average person as there are more attractive people around and thus people's standards become higher. This means that an average person in an attractive community would have more difficulty finding a relationship but will also require more effort or attractiveness as such to get a relationship when compared to a normal population. The converse is also true. When you live in an area with unattractive people, the average person will have more dates because they're essentially the more attractive out of the population. But the average quality of those dates will be lower as well, as there simply isn't as many attractive people in the area and people's standards are lower. Now, I'm going to get a bit crude here, and please don't be offended by my analysis, but rather look at it purely from a clinical level. Has someone ever turned to you and said, I have an average looking friend who is dating an exceptionally beautiful person? How did this happen? Well, this model already accepts this possibility because, as stated above, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and partners have qualities that are valued and demanded differently to others. Let's say your friend is a 2 out of 10. Obviously, no one should think their friend is a 2 out of 10. We may find that there is a shortage of people willing to date them, as demand for relationships from the 2 group outstrips the supply of relationships or a 2. But there is still some demand. That means that there are buyers who would be willing to date them. As you've already noticed, there is a shortage for people willing to date twos because every two wants love, but not every lover wants a two. Let's turn to the value of education using this economic model and assume a heterosexual circumstance for the purpose of this analysis. According to Universities UK 2018, women are now more educated at a university level than men in West UK. What does this mean? It means that the supply of educated women outnumber educated men in the same age bracket. So the relative price of educated men is higher than for educated women due to the upward pressure of being both scarce in supply and more in demand from educated women. So men have it pretty good here. They can afford to refuse to date below their educational level due to the fact that there are more educated women to each man. Now let's turn to the classic term playing hard to get. Now I doubt many of you haven't heard this term before and one must ask the question, why do people play hard to get? It's an attempt to raise your value by seeming more in demand than what you actually are. And whether it's effective will depend on two factors. Number one, will your customers recognise your true value or assumed value? And secondly, does your customer believe that they are worthy of your assumed value. If your assumed value does not match your presented price, you'll find that your customers may believe that you are not worth the effort. Another issue is that while your perceived value may be higher during the initial stages of a relationship, when you relax, you may find that your partner is no longer interested in your actual value, and that will lead to future issues in the relationship. In other words, if you try to attract a guy or girl who likes to chase, don't be surprised when they're bored because they don't have to chase anymore. Show your real value. Get a guy or a girl who will be happy 
with exactly the product you're offering. At the end of the day, dating attraction and romance are just as applicable to economic principles as anything else. The fact that we refer to dating as a commercial marketplace of people in supply and demand proves this fact. There are factors inside and outside of your control that affect your desirability. However, the value placed on these particular attributes obviously vary depending on the eye of the beholder. Regardless of your disposition, you subconsciously always apply economics in your dating decisions by considering your willingness to pay and willingness to accept different people in the market. Some of you may have never entered the dating game and some of you may have been swimming in it for a while now. If you have been in there for a while, you need to correct and match your expectations to reality and ask yourself the question of whether you think you are willing to pay more or less in regards to time and energy. And in terms of willingness to accept, think about the boundaries or filters you are setting. Perhaps they are too loose or too tight. I'm certainly not trying to offer dating advice here because I am no expert, but at the end of the day, if you wouldn't accept a subpar product for an inflated price, then you shouldn't accept the same in your partner. So good luck. Now, as expected, I'm going to share a quote with you, and this one is a little dirty because what I do as a living involves assessing risk and economic impacts every day. So here goes. It's often said that no company can make profit without taking a risk. This is a really simple quote I grabbed from a textbook while studying, but I took a lot away from it because I believe that while you may not be able to make a profit without taking risk, arguably, you also can't grow as a person either if you don't take risks. Even if the risk results in a negative outcome, you still learn from the experience and that itself is positive. So when you find yourself in bed swiping left or right to those dating apps tonight, perhaps consider taking a risk and meeting someone in person. The experience may take you nowhere with that person, but at least it will provide you with a bit more perspective as to what you do and don't like for next time. I'll leave you on that. You're listening to The Shady Economist, making economics accessible to everyone. Please follow me on Instagram at The Shady Economist. And as I've said before, if there are any topics you'd like me to discuss in the future or in episodes, please feel free to let me know or... If you want some clarity behind any topics or any theory, just send me a message and I'm happy to address them in there. I look forward to you listening in on the next episode. Bye for now.